Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I am Danielle Moody. And I'm Ajahat Ali. And Waj, we have a special guest that I am so excited to be in conversation with because I don't know how many times I talk about white evangelical Christians in a week. Uh, so we have the person who literally wrote the book on it. Please uh, do her the honor and give our folks an introduction. We are blessed to have Professor Kristen Dumay here, who's the author of the best-selling and much necessary book that you all need to, uh, to read called Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. It's available in paperback. Thank you, Kristen, for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's, you know, so we talk often um, on this podcast about uh, the rise of white Christian nationalism, how uh, it was a major factor in the January 6th violent insurrection. You know, we scratch our heads trying to figure out why so many white Christian evangelicals love this guy called Donald Trump, despite his anti-Semitism and his misogyny and his cruelty and his racism. And the more racist he is, it seems the more that they love him. And you, in this book and in your scholarship, you've kind of done this brilliant job of, of tracing it back to, to the 50s, even before that. To, sh to, sh to show the seeds of what has germinated now into this full-blown movement where there's this marriage between white, white evangelical Christians and the GOP. And, and we really want to get deep into this because all those all the stuff that we're talking about in the 50s and 60s, it, it's a comeback now. It's a remake. Prayers in schools and school choice and, and attacking women's rights and the feminists and the gays. And that apparently the Muslims have probably replaced the communists, but maybe the communists will make a comeback. And so to connect the dots for so many of our listeners, first and foremost, just definitions. Can you define for us what is white Christian nationalism in 2022 America? Yeah, in the book, I, I give a pretty simple definition, uh, white Christian nationalism, essentially the idea that America is a Christian nation and it needs mm. to be defended as such. And that entails kind of foreign policy, a militarism, aggressive militarism even, but it also shapes domestic politics. So the Christian identity of the nation and the whiteness is assumed here uh, also needs to be defended. And as in foreign policy, 
policy. The best defense is a good offense. And so this idea of preemptive war, of striking before they come for you, is part of what we're looking at. Is it also, Kristen, is it also attached to, uh, in many ways, white fragility and this belief that we are just um, under attack? We are the most oppressed. And if we don't strike first, then they, the perceived they of the list that Waj just laid out for us, are going to come and get us. Is that something that is inherent in this kind of faith? In this posture, it definitely is. And the, you know, we could talk white fragility or white Christian fragility, but the rhetoric of uh, embattlement has been a constant in conservative white evangelical spaces for more than half a century. And this functions in a way of kind of uniting uh, conservative white Christians, but also justifying, again, a kind of aggressive and preemptive strike uh, to protect uh, their you know, uh, claimed uh, uh, vulnerability. And, and so uh, you know, it functions as a way of consolidating power for leaders and also demanding loyalty loyalty and sacrifice from their followers. It's, it's it's like this perpetual victimhood, right? Which which stuns us. Because you know, Danielle is a black woman. <laughs> I'm a Muslim man, son of Pakistani immigrants. And we've talked about this on this podcast before. When you look at the polls, uh, a white majority feels like they're the biggest victims in America. And specifically, like you mentioned, the, uh, this white Christian evangelicals, when you listen to them and when you watch Fox, uh, when you listen to the podcast, we're under attack. They're against us. They're against our students. And the rest of us are like, yo, I'd love to do a Freaky Friday trade with you. Like, <laughs> you know, I would love to trade places. It seems like you guys are crushing it. That, you know, and especially I'm, I'm sure you've seen this poll where, you know, people think there's like far more of us that actually exist. Like America apparently has 35 percent of Muslims and like everyone's gay. And, and this this deep fear uh, of victimhood. Is it does it parallel, Kristen? With and, and you know maybe I'm leading here and correct me if I'm wrong. It seems to me that any time, any marginalized community, let's say women, people of color, Muslims, just make any progress, it's a zero sum mindset for this group that mm -hmm. says your progress has come at my expense. It, it does seem to function that way, and you know you can trace this back historically to the 1920s, 1930s, and into the 40s when conservative evangelicals did feel marginalized, and, and they had some reason to feel that way, that they had not been able to maintain control of mainline denominations, and uh, they felt marginalized, scattered, and out of power. And you can see in the 40s and the 50s, this kind of movement back into the mainstreaming and, and consolidating some of that power, the formation of the National Association of Evangelicals and so forth. But in the 60s, that, that kind of this, this consensus era shatters their position at the center of American power that they were just moving into is very much uh, in question once again. And you can see this is the context of the feminist movement and the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. And all of these things really do give conservative white evangelicals the feeling that they are being displaced, that they do not have the power that they ought to have, that they need to have to ensure the, uh, the, the identity of white Christian America to ensure the faithfulness of Americans. You know, one of the things that I think is obviously in, in your title, but also in the context of the book, is a discussion around toxic white masculinity. 
right? And this attachment that white evangelical Christians have to this idea of the the buff righteous man uh that is grabbing his woman under one arm a gun in the other and at the same time riding a horse and so you know and shooting how, the savage from the right, horse and sh- of, of course how is it that an overweight um uh, a, a former impeached president that has been married five times with children from different women that Bone has spurs. bragged about that has bragged about grabbing women um, that it, it has sexual assault cases. How is it that they justify their mm. understanding of masculinity and see it through the lens of Trump? How, how, what, it, what are the mental gymnastics mm. that white evangelical Christians do in order to justify their faith with a man that is so obviously faithless? I mean, that was the question of 2016, wasn't it? And the, the question that persists up to this present moment, how could white evangelicals, how could family values conservatives yeah. betray their values to vote for a man like Donald Trump? And what I knew because of the research that I had done, I'd started this research more than 15 years ago and actually set it aside into white evangelical ideals of masculinity. And what I knew in the fall of 2016, in the days after the release of the Access Hollywood tapes, that what we were looking at wasn't the betrayal of evangelical values. We simply didn't correctly understand what Mm. those values were. And we have to place the assertion of white patriarchal authority at the heart of family values politics, Mm. at the heart of conservative white evangelicalism. And when you do that, this isn't a betrayal. This is a fulfillment in many ways. And a lot of these pieces fall into place. It's wild. You said it's a fulfillment, which means Mm. that it's not an aberration, that that this is part and parcel. Like they see Trump and they see Trumpism and all its cruelty and all the data shows the more violent he was, the more ugly and vicious and misogynist and racist the it's not like people fled no they went they doubled down for him and yeah. and, and i think that the, what part and parcel of what daniel's kind of shock is for for many of us who come from faith traditions i was i'm a practicing muslim i was i went to an all-boys jesuit catholic high school i read the bible you know it, we're sitting here thinking but this is a betrayal of jesus like how how right. do you jesus was all but you know jesus didn't sit there in like a suit and tie and said uh oh, tax cuts for the rich <laughs> He's, Are you he's, sure? Do you have evidence no, of that? Yeah, watch? he didn't sit there with a gun and be like, "Hey, get your assault rifles and go mow down your enemies." And like, so it it it, it again is, and I know you've talked about this, but how can you explain to the rest of us how they do the mental gymnastics of saying that this is sanctioned by God? Hmm. Hmm. First, I should acknowledge that this is not all white evangelicals, of course, of not course. all conservative white evangelicals, that there are very deep divides within white evangelical churches and communities right now. And, and you see some of that played out uh, if, if you're on social media at all. But uh, but these these mental gymnastics, what you can see is that for decades now, evangelicals have been holding up an ideal of Christian manhood that champions testosterone as God-given to make men aggressive, to make men fierce so that they can protect faith, family, and nation. And sometimes men need to step up and be ruthless. And, And then what you see happening is this idea of gender difference and of patriarchal authority and of of female submission 
moves to the center of evangelical cultural and political identity. And it ends up transforming not just evangelical ideals of manhood, but Christianity itself, because they end up reshaping the Jesus of the Gospels into a warrior Christ so that he is presented as Chuck Norris you know, Jesus. Wow. Yes, as being muscular and wielding a sword and having tattoos down his leg and riding a, a horse into battle. And so they transform Jesus and they actually like toss it's like out. like Viking Jesus. Yeah, uh, you know, definitely William, William Wallace from the movie Braveheart Jesus. That go. is their favorite hero. And 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 what they do then is they um, they, they throw out passages of the scriptures. They just they, they, they say that doesn't really apply now. Like uh, love your neighbors, love your enemies, turn the other cheek. Uh, that doesn't apply to us right now because the situation is so dire. And so they end up essentially transforming Jesus and transforming Christianity. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that forced David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities. Healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country. Immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun. And candidates in states with razor thin margins. Listen to Build the Change Now wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I, I want to ask you this because as I listen, as I'm listening to you and the transformation that this faith and and I use the term loosely uh, that ha, that has shaped uh, sh shifted over time, I think about then the threat, the apparent threat that the LGBTQ community and trans people then must uh, have against their belief system because if I'm functioning to what you're saying as putting patriarchy, toxic masculinity and submit and, and, and female submission at the center of, of this faith, then anything that would push back against these perceived norms would then be seen as the enemy. Exactly. 
Exactly. And so you can go back here too. We have more than half a century of teachings that that really do place these particular gender ideals and gender ideals that are shaped on kind of 1950s American white middle class culture and harkening back to a kind of mythical, also white middle class Victorian era, right? This is kind of the, the model that they use to then say that these gender roles are God ordained and they add all sorts of requirements of how to be a good Christian woman, how to be a good Christian mm. man. And, and that, um, uh, again, emphasizes this, this fundamental God-ordained reality of gender difference by which they, they mean opposites. So mm -hmm, men are to mm -hmm. be leaders. They are to be strong. They are mm -hmm. to be assertive and aggressive and ruthless. And women are to be, they are weak. They are dependent. They are seductive. They are, are to support their husbands and not, not to um, hold their husbands back in any way. And, and so if you look at anything like, um, you know, feminism, certainly, but particularly LGBTQ, right? This just goes at the heart of this, what has been called essentially, or what has been determined to be the, the fundamental God-ordained order. And this isn't just about individual choices, but in a Christian nationalist framework, where uh, the expectation is that the nation itself and the nation's laws ought to reflect this God-ordained order, that's where you can see it can turn quite coercive. So it's it's so, not enough. It's oh, go ahead, Daniel. No, I just because I I get because I, I, I as a queer person, right? As a as a person that lives at the intersection of of multiple identities, one of the one of the beautiful, most beautiful aspects of the queer community is this idea to live outside of the box that I am able to define myself for myself, as Audre Lorde said, right? That I am able um, to that that the that the binary is something that was made up, right? That was made up as as a, as a way to control people. And we see that in, in, you know, in the foundation of institutionalized religion. And so then is it the practice of turning these people who want to live free, who are living free outside of this, uh, of this binary into criminals? Like, must you villainize them in order to uplift your belief structure? I think if you have an embrace, if you have embraced this kind of Christian nationalist worldview, right, that the faithfulness of this country, of people you do not know, of your fellow citizens, that their obedience to the the God ordained order that you perceive is absolutely critical to whether or not God will bless or curse your nation, right? This is kind of the framework here. So this, this is not a recipe for pluralism or mm. frankly for a healthy democratic system, right? There, there are, I mean, one of the things that I was very surprised to see uh, when, I, when I really dug into this research was just how critical the concept of authority was in, in books on how to, how to raise your children on how to have a happy marriage, this social hierarchy and this authority, which as I was reading this, I I, I thought this is this is leaning towards authoritarian, right? Mm. 
it was and, and certainly anti-democratic when you feel like you have special access to God's truth and others do not. And why would you want to empower those who don't have access to God's truth with the with you know the ability to make laws, with the ability to vote, with the ability to shape this country? And so it very much has this us versus them um, mindset, which I think uh, when when taken to its logical extreme is anti-democratic. Well, you mentioned that, and you're mm-hmm. mentioning the, the the verge towards authoritarianism, both at the home and at a local level, but also at a political level. I'm sure you're aware of this um, report that came out on February 9th, uh, Christian Nationalism at the January 6th Insurrection, which was a joint project from the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty and the Freedom from Religious Foundation, which pretty much takes all these scholars, I'm sure many of your friends, and, and talks about the immense influential role of white Christian nationalism in inspiring the violent mob of January 6th, which we've mentioned on the show before. I'm like, how come mm-hmm. no one else is talking about this? This is white Christian nationalism inspired the violent insurrection and the mob. And so taking it to the present level, Kristen, and looking at the future with the crystal ball, what's the end game here? Mm-hmm. That's a really hard question. When I look at the events of January 6th, you can absolutely see all kinds of religious symbolism. You can listen to prayers offered on the floors, uh, floor of the Senate. Also, you know, a prayer by the Proud Boys offered on the way to the Capitol. And, and you have all of this religious imagery. And many, though not all, but many of the participants of the, the Capitol siege uh, were Christians. Um, my focus actually is is less on those who are actually there at the Capitol and more on ordinary folks and their response. And that's what I've tried to pay a lot of attention to. So within evangelicalism, you have you know a, a range from real extremism to the majority of evangelicals are going to be somewhere in the you know conservative moderate um, uh, space. And and I was watching very closely, kind of ordinary folks, how they were responding to what happened. We're on talking January about ordinary 6th. white evangelicals, people in the pews. Yeah, got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where initially I saw a lot of denial, right? This is not us. This is Antifa, right? right. We're not. Mm-hmm. And, and then after a few days, that wasn't very viable anymore. So then I heard a lot of silence, mm. just nothing. And then I started to hear a, a kind of, we don't condone violence, but. but, and then a lot of justification, right? And that actually is very concerning to me that I, I worry that people who have been steeped for generations now in this kind of culture wars vision of what it is to be a faithful Christian and a good American uh, and and a, you know, a vision of Christ that's a, a kind of warrior Christ and you have to follow in his footsteps, that that does not create the conditions for restraint. I can, I can put that much. So mm-hmm. the most evangelicals were not storming the Capitol, but I'm looking for where they are going to draw the line and say, this is this is not okay. And I'm not seeing a lot of that line drawing except from people who are kind of the never Trumpers, the 19%, if you will, among those who are supporters of Trump, supporters of this kind of white Christian nationalism, I don't see much restraint. So there's no line for the 81% so far. 
there, I, I can't say there isn't one. No, I that, have that, not that you've yet, seen, excuse me. I have seen. not yet seen one. And so hmm. it concerns me where that line might be. When it comes to questions like uh, uh, you know, access to voting, voting rights, uh, I don't see much concern on that front. Uh, when we look at state level, you know, party politics and just just basic democratic norms, uh, I don't see a whole lot of robust support. I mean, you can look right at the Kyle Rittenhouse case and the people that came out for Kyle Rittenhouse and the ones that said, well, he is defending property. He is defending our faith. I mean, he's he, the victim. He literally crossed state lines and shot and killed two people and injured a third. Yes. And 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 so when you say that there is no line that you have seen, I mean, we have seen what what they want, which is AR15 slung over a shoulder, not just going into your Starbucks to get a frappuccino, but shooting down anybody that you that you see as a as a presumed threat, right? That whether you're looking for them or not. You know, and so I, I, I wonder, I want to ask you this question with regard not to just what we're seeing as the rise of extremism in this country, but, you know, we just came out of France's election, yes. right? And we just saw that, you know, while everyone is celebrating the fact that Macron, you know, won, the reality is, is that Le Pen gained much in the same way that Trump gained in voters from 2016 to 2020. So, Kristen, what is happening globally at this time that is creating this type of extremist tempest? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a really, really big question. I can speak first to the the influence uh, that this American movement ha is having mm. globally. And one of the things that I do in Jesus and John Wayne is I examine evangelicalism, not primarily as a set of theological ideals, but as a consumer culture. And that culture spills over borders. And you've got the influence of conservative evangelical religion and politics that's through televangelism and Christian radio and the Christian publishing industry that goes global. And so I hear from uh, Christians in countries around the world, in Australia, many in Brazil, in the UK, in Eastern Europe, uh, in uh, uh, in Canada, right? Of the the influences of this right wing evangelicalism that is really taking hold in mm. China as well, actually. And then you've got the broader global context as well, where we see the rise of right-wing authoritarianism, uh, again, around the globe. And, and it fits hand in hand with this religious nationalism, right? And this is where we see the case of, of what's happening in Russia and with Putin. And that's something I addressed just briefly at the end of Jesus and John Wayne, where, you know, for for so long, evangelicals define themselves against Russia, against communism, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This is their their Cold War identity. Yeah. And 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 it was just astounding then to see in recent years the pro-Putin <laughs> sentiments within conservative evangelical spaces, and that unity is coming from uh, a sense of of Christian shared Christian nationalism and opposition to the rights of LGBTQ folks. And the and line so of Christianity—that's what they refer to him as, the line exactly, of Christianity. Exactly. And so you see that happening not just in Russia but uh, around the world, and it's it's deeply concerning. 
you know, Kristen, I've said this before, we've said this before on the show, but this is, just, this is my terminology, I'm only speaking for myself, that I see the rise of a radicalized and weaponized pro-death cult. Uh, I, I, and by pro-death, mm. you know, uh, they don't care about rights, they don't care about freedoms, they don't care about vaccines, they don't care about a pandemic, they don't care about climate change because this is the kingdom of God on earth. And then once you establish the kingdom of God on earth, there will be the rapture and it's, you know, it, we'll all go to heaven. Well, not all of us, uh, some of us, uh, <laughs> not all of us. Not all of us. And because, as you were mentioning, because they're the victims in this, in this, uh, in this story, and the rest of us are the threats who are seeking to oppress and replace them. They rationalize violence in order to save themselves, restore their civilization, and implement uh, mm -hmm. the kingdom of God on earth. And their actions then are blessed because they have the celestial stamp of approval. Now, if, I've, if I'm wrong about this, Cliff Notes analysis, please tell me, number one. And number two, if I'm not wrong about this, how do you... And I'm asking you two questions. First of all, let me know if I'm wrong about this. But number two, if I'm not wrong about this, how do you crack this nut? Because even mm. from interfaith angles, I can tell you that, you know, there's differences of opinion with Catholics, but we can get along on shared values. Even with Muslims and Jews, believe it or not, shared values. Most of these faith communities say the white evangelical Christian community, we cannot crack this nut. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now, wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Right. So uh, it's, it's, it's a really it's a really tough question. I think uh, if you um, go back to this question, uh, well, I will I will confess that, you know, observing a culture and a, a faith tradition that has so long identified as the pro-life party mm. and watching them in recent years <laughs> and then stretching back further. You know, if you look at, so we have such survey data on, you know, on firearms and, uh, you know, views of law enforcement and Black Lives Matter and on immigrants and refugees and on all of this, right? This, um, uh, there is uh, the, the, a level of comfort with violence. 
And uh, that's the that's the John Wayne part of the book too, right? That John Wayne is this icon of conservative masculinity, and he is the white man who brings order through violence, usually by subduing non-white populations. But it is a righteous violence, right? Mm. Order through violence, and that is is the rhetoric that we see that resonates deeply with uh, with many conservative evangelicals. So if God is on your side, then the ends will justify the means. How far will this go? Uh, honestly, the, the pandemic has been sobering to see a conservative evangelical response to um, uh, you, you to the pandemic and uh, the apparent lack of care for the vulnerable when for so long that was kind of their brand. And uh, so I don't know. I don't know where this goes. It's jarring. What do we do about it? How do we crack this nut? Uh, I I have no idea. I do think it's necessary. <laughs> I sorry, is that why you had me on oh, here? Shit. Because I'm sorry God, to disappoint. Kristen, no, no, we I appreciate that. We thought you were going to end this with like, so here are three steps. Oh, okay, <laughs> What I will say, Chris is like, pray, pray to God, pray to Jesus. <laughs> Everybody, uh, I will say that it's 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 really critical for evangelicals from the inside to do some really hard work, mm. and that is going to require speaking out. It's going to be it's going to require uh, offending your friends, your family. It it will probably result in a, some people losing their jobs, and uh, this is we have seen a lot of silence and a lot of deference inside these spaces. And I think that the um, the stakes are too high for that right now. And, uh, you know, for outsiders to c- critique what they're seeing only really ends up reinforcing the, mm. these dynamics because that's exactly what they would expect this in, in this us versus them um, view of the world. But those of us on the inside have to be speaking out. The problem there is that as soon as you do start speaking out, you are... You're, you're, you're removed you're no and you are labeled an outsider. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think we often, you know, Waj and I on this show uh, discuss the fact that Democrats do not have the right messaging. They don't they don't identify the villain, let alone under, like understand them. Right. And so as I'm listening to you speak, I'm saying we have tried to shame these people. We have tried to throw their own uh, biblical scripture, scripture back at them and say, this is unchristian like, and they are like, we shall not be moved. Right. So if, if you have redefined Christ, right. And, and, and we no longer have that shared value, I guess, you know, it, it's the same question that Waj asked and, but in a different way, do you believe that where we are right now, and I say this on my other show is actually going to get bloodier before it gets better. Uh, it would seem to be that that's the trajectory we're on. And here's the dilemma mm. that I see. On the one hand, and, and I am a white Christian. I teach at a Christian university, right? I don't identify as an evangelical because I'm not identifying with this movement, but you could call me one and it wouldn't be entirely inaccurate. Um, so um, the dilemma that I see is it's really important for us now to to describe what is happening 
with honesty and with some urgency, right? We have to diagnose this. And I do think that we are in a precarious moment with mm. respect to our democracy. So I think we, we share that view. I think that's absolutely critical and that too many evangelicals for too long have, have, uh, have played this down have uh, have tried to label you know these extremist views as fringe when what we're seeing is a real shift into the Seems mainstream. Seems pretty mainstream. <laughs> Seems pretty mainstream. Exactly. So we have to acknowledge that. Now the problem is that that's important for diagnosis. It might not be the right thing to bring about a solution because what is critical is to appeal to some of these folks in the middle, right? Mm. To come along to this side and not to side with the extremists when for so long they have been taught that your faith is is under siege and that these people are your allies and these people are your enemies. So how do you reach across that difference? You know, and I think we have to be very attentive to the question of cultural identity here. That, mm -hmm. you know, if you're throwing Bible verses or if you're saying you're doing this or you're doing that, you're striking at the heart of people's identities right and i'm 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 from a small town in iowa i take my son to tractor supply my husband drives a pickup right you know like i've got these things i love my small town i came from right these are my people and at the same time uh you know so we, we need to find a way to affirm those aspects of people's identity, you know, this red state, blue state, rural, or, you know, the, the cultural spaces that these people are coming from and say, there is, there's an off ramp here. Mm. And you, you know, so whether it's uniting around a truer patriotism of finding what we hold in common and, and kind of holding up that aspiration together, that's my ideal. I don't see it working. I haven't seen it happening very well, <laughs> but that's all I've got. No, you know, I appreciate that. Danielle's like, see, see, I'm not the only one who's cynical. As as we're wrapping up real quick, I have to, you know, I just want your insight on this real quick. Just looking forward. What I find fascinating, going back to your book, Jesus and John Wayne, right? You, you just told us they remanufactured Jesus into like a Viking warrior. John Wayne, and you talk about this in your book, how John Wayne became this character. I just want to remind people, John Wayne was an actor, a surfer who got injured, fell into acting and plays a role. It's fiction. Then you yes. have Ronald mm -hmm. Reagan, who people forget was an actor and yep. also then became president and he became the, the, the Promethean Trump. Then you have Trump, who is an actor on yep. The Apprentice. And, you know, this image of him as the successful businessman, it's all BS. It's fake. So I'm seeing a, an idealized vision of a masculinity and a white Christian man, Christian, that is not real. It's, yeah. it's literally fake. And so I think about this and I want your insights as to moving forward. You know, it, to me, it seems that whiteness is like an Afrit who that just jumps into like different vessels. It just it it finds a way to evolve. A different host. Different host. It, it adapts. A different host. You know, yes. and so if, you know, everyone you just I know I'm not asking you to look at a crystal ball, crystal, uh, crystal ball here with this. But after Trump is gone, his age or maybe gets arrested or maybe he retires and eats burgers. Where do you see this? You know, it went from Jesus to John Wayne to Reagan to Trump. Mm. Who's the next avatar? Mm. I I don't know. Trump is, is so bizarrely attractive, right, <laughs> to this um, uh, kind of myth, uh, mythical culture, uh, and just broke so many rules 
that it is in, in such a charismatic, mystifyingly charismatic way, right? To those of us on the other side, right? We just don't get it. Uh, it really is hard to see who comes next because everybody pales in comparison. You know, Ted Cruz tried to play that game uh, back in 2016, failed miserably. You know, does DeSantis have a chance? Maybe. Uh, but certainly Trump, the standard he set has has changed our politics. Who fills that next? I have no idea. No idea who's going to do that, what kind of twists and turns. Uh, what I do know in terms of what could disrupt things, historically speaking, usually uh, there are a few things more destructive than war. And uh, so, you know, all along as I've mm. been looking, I thought this, the, this, this tradition that I was uncovering, this history that I was researching, I, I realized uh, early on in my research, this is so deeply embedded. I don't think this is going to change. Like, I didn't write this book to try to change this. I, I thought I'm just describing. I don't think this is going to change. That's why my book is not particularly hopeful. Um, but the one thing I kept in the back of my mind, just from a long view of history, is that war can dramatically alter uh, whatever moment we're in. Unfortunately, more often than not, war tends to radicalize movements like this. So that's also not like a great solution, both the war and the, the threat of radicalization. Uh, but that's that's something that I'm keeping my eye on. But what's around the corner? As a historian, I, I can honestly say I have absolutely no idea because history is just full of twists and turns that you never anticipate. Kristen, I, I got to thank you so much for for joining Democracy Ish and, you know, bringing much needed cold water onto what we are doing to um, to understand, to fight against, to push back um, against uh, Christian, you know, fundamentalism in this country. Folks, the book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Kristen Dumay, thank you so much. Thank you uh, so much for joining us. Oh, uh, thank folks, you. Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. I'm Wajahat Ali. And God willing, inshallah, we'll be back next week. <laughs>